Tonight what I'd like to talk about is the subject of transcendence or transformation. There are a couple of issues that yogis speak about when they leave retreats that are problematic. One of the issues that's often spoken about is is how to integrate the practice in daily life. And there's all kinds of formulas and prescriptions for this, but it doesn't solve the issue. None of them do. And the other issue that's often spoken about as being problematic outside of the retreat situation is the sense of losing some kind of spark or vitality in the practice. That, you know, a person may have a very regular and sustained daily practice and yet feel a certain kind of barrenness or dryness in it. And my my sense is that the two are actually very related. The question of integration is very clearly related to the question of how much spark and vitality we feel in our own practice. And my feeling also is that that issue has something to do with much more than how much or how little we sit in our lives that that's actually a very side issue. That the question of spark and vitality has to do with something much deeper, to do with our own own impulse, our own motivation, our own inspiration for meditation practice. For example, it seems to me that there is a, a very strong tendency to equate meditation with states of mind and states of experience. That meditation means something. It means calmness, or it means a a certain kind of high, or it means a certain level of serenity, or it means a certain level of concentration. Now, all of those are states of mind, and they're all states of experience that are all conditioned by the factors that are present on a retreat. So basically, if we associate meditation with those states of mind and states of experience, then I regret to say we're going to lose them. Not only are we going to lose them, but we're going to lose a sense of meditation in our lives. And I feel there's a, it's, it's a very frustrating loss, and it's a very unnecessary disappointment. I feel that there's another much more important association with meditation, which is often not seen clearly enough, is that meditation really is an openness to learning. That is what meditation is, a willingness to learn, an openness to deepening in understanding. And that actually has nothing to do with states of mind or states of experience. That actually has to do with the kind of relationship, the quality of inspiration, that we bring to the moment that we bring to the moment to moment grittiness and joys in our lives this whole area of impulse and motivation and meditation it seems to me is extraordinarily important because it flavors both how our meditation is shaped on a retreat 
it, but more importantly, it flavors how much our meditation is an ongoing process of learning and deepening. Many of the impulses and inspirations we, we carry into meditation are often actually quite conditioned. Uh, they're often unconscious. We are not even necessarily consciously registering the kind of motivation and the kind of impulse we have for meditation because we adopt it from basically from the traditions of spirituality that have surrounded us in our lives or that we are exposed to in the present. I mean, we all know that there are as many different traditions and as many different practices and as many different styles of meditation as there are teachers. Despite the differences, one similarity that all the different traditions and all the different styles and practices have is that they point us, essentially they point us to a way of seeing and a way of being which is deeper and more profound than what our intellects tell us, what our minds know, or what we perceive through the sense doors. And the one shared message, perhaps the one common message of all tradition, is a quality of vision. That's its basic heart. There's this quality of vision, a vision of a way of being in ourselves and the world where we are awake, where we are aware, where we are in touch with our own capacity to live as compassionate, understanding, and sensitive human beings. And mystics in every tradition have always shared in delivering that message, a message that really speaks to our own sense of possibility, that speaks to our own sense of possibility. And the words that are used to describe that sense of possibility or that, that vision differ. They differ from tradition to tradition. You know, it might be called God, it might be called enlightenment, they're called the sacred or oneness. And the words are used in an attempt to describe a way of seeing which is essentially indescribable. But those words are not irrelevant. The words evoke from within us a sense of inspiration. They draw us, they resonate within ourselves, and they inspire us to look inwardly and to explore the possibilities of our own being, to explore whether there is a possibility of living in a way which is not marked by, by struggle and by fear and by conflict and by separation. And in a way, those words are meant to empower us in that exploration, to take upon ourselves the whole question of exploring who we are as human beings, apart from our images and apart from our, our roles and our identities and our labels. When we begin that exploration, it's very clear to us that actually quite a lot is required of us. It's not a question of hearing that some vision is possible or there's possibility of really being awake we are actually asked to respond to that in a very vital way. 
we are asked to look at our own sense of vision, our own sense of possibility that we hold within ourselves. We are asked to question in our own lives what may seem to bar us, what may seem to prevent us from experiencing that sense of possibility. We are asked really to explore our own being deeply, understanding that in order to bring that sense of possibility to fruition, a great deal of opening and letting go and understanding is required of us. In a way, we're asked to go beyond what we know. That is what we're asked to do in the spiritual path. To go beyond what we know, what is familiar to us, the ways that we perceive the world through our images and filters, to go beyond the conditioning that might limit us, that might deliver us into very prescribed ways of being. When we listen to the teachings in most traditions, it seems that we are asked to go beyond what we know, to go beyond what we believe, and to go beyond what we assume. Because what's pointed out to us again and again, that so often it is what we believe, and what we assume, and what we think that we know, that limits our possibility of opening into what we don't know. When we look at what is required of us in this path, I mean, it often just very basically comes down to letting go. That's what seems to be what this path is all about. We hear it again and again and again, the need to let go. You know, in most talks you listen to basically say the same thing in different ways. You know, how about letting go? There's no end to how often we hear it. And we're asked to let go of opinions, beliefs, the identities we consider to be real. We're asked to let go of all the things that preoccupy us, that we dwell upon, so that we can be empty, not blank, but so that there can be a quality of emptiness and receptivity and openness to learning present within ourselves. And when we listen closely to most teachings, it does seem that in this path of awakening, we're actually asked to leave ourselves behind, to let go of all of our ideas and our beliefs about who we are. Because when hindrances are spoken of or when blocks or limitations or problems are spoken of in meditation, it seems that the whole range of problems and hindrances we experience basically seem to come down to one essential problem, which is the problem of I and the problem of holding. It's the sense of self is described as a kind of deeply rooted weed which manifests in these branches which overshadow our lives, creating pain and bringing separation and division. It is often the seeing of, the, the seeing of pain, 
seeing the pain of separation and division that self creates, that inspires our own spiritual search. I mean, for many people, their own spiritual search is inspired out of an awareness of suffering and a desire to bring it to an end. And it's out of this awareness of suffering that the impulse for transcendence is born. And when we look at most major spiritual traditions, they are rooted in the idea, the belief in the need to transcend, to go beyond, to transcend oneself in order to be free, we hear to transcend the attachments and the props that give solidity to a sense of self, to transcend the beliefs that we hold about ourselves and in order to be enlightened. It's the basic premise of most spiritual traditions as we hear them. And that premise is extended a little bit further and it seems to me that this is the root and the basis of most spirituality that it is not just transcendence of self that is required, but also transcendence of the world. To me, this is the belief that we absorb consciously and unconsciously. And it becomes the basis, easily becomes unconsciously the basis of our own spiritual aspiration to go beyond, to get higher, to leave behind becomes the association we have with spirituality, and then basically we're in trouble. The idea of transcendence is adopted as both a path and a goal. If you look at most religious tradition, most religious teaching, most spiritual teaching, the idea of going beyond, of leaving behind, is seen as the basic path and the goal Look at the way that that filters down into the different paths of spirituality. Faith. Now, faith is, is, a, is a basic element, a basic foundation of most spiritual paths. We're asked to have faith often in something greater than ourselves, in something other than what we know that there is such a thing as awakening or enlightenment or the sacred. Obviously, to even begin this journey, we need to have some faith that there is something other than what we know. Most people don't do this practice in order just to experience more of the same that we already experience. We're asked to have faith that there is something other. Sometimes that faith is focused upon a a concept such as enlightenment. Sometimes it's focused upon a person or upon a teacher or upon a teaching. Now, there are many positive aspects of faith. I mean, it does inspire us. It does energize us. It does help us to be undistracted. And it encourages us to seek oneness. And yet, often in seeking oneness, in going beyond the limits of self, we also seem to be asked basically to leave behind us who we are, what we know, the ways in which we see ourselves in order to merge with something other. Service is a major spiritual tradition. Giving 
generosity. And it's often used as a way of transcending self because we give for two reasons. One reason for giving certainly is to relieve suffering. And the other reason for giving and the way that service is used as a spiritual tradition is to go beyond greed, to go beyond holding, and to go beyond self. Basically to transcend all of those things which are seen as being more limited. Necessary in every spiritual path is the quality of renunciation. Letting go of attachments and clinging which reinforce the self. And the pinnacle of renunciation is seen to be the renunciation of I. The renunciation of self. Again, the whole aspect of transcendence, of going beyond. Purification is a part of every spiritual tradition. Seeing that there are parts of ourselves that seem to uh, limit us, to confine us, that act as hindrances and obstacles. And the attempt through meditation, through faith, through giving, to purify them, to go beyond that which seems to limit us. Meditation is a major path. It's a path of exploration and it's a path of inquiry. And as we know, in most traditions, what is emphasized is seeing the emptiness of self as a stepping stone to going beyond self. And transcendence becomes the primary motivation and it's understandable why that has been historically a primary motivation and why transcendence is a primary motivation in the present. Look at the world. We're aware of suffering, of pain, and of misery. Look at ourselves. At times we're very aware of discontent and of pain and difficulty in our own lives. We are faced with conflicts at times that we seem unable to change, both inwardly and outwardly. It is no surprise that the wish for transcendence is born. It is no surprise that the desire to go beyond is actually created. And yet, what do we mean by transcendence? What, do we, what are we actually saying when we say, you know, if we adopt this consciously or unconsciously as our motivation in, in meditation, aren't we talking in some ways about separation, about disconnection, about withdrawing from and divorcing ourselves from what is present here in order to reach something that is higher, something that is more spiritual, something that is more enlightened. What are we seeking to transcend? Pain and suffering. If you trace the roots of pain, if you trace the roots of discontent in our lives, where are those roots found? The roots are found in our relationships with other people. The roots of pain and discontent are found in our relationship with the world. I mean, where do we experience anger and conflict? Not in a vacuum, in relationship to others. We see also our relationship to our bodies. How much fear 
exists around our bodies, around aging, around death, around appearance. We see the pain that is often, too, rooted in our feelings, in our thoughts, how, you know, sometimes our minds and our feelings are not always a great companion for us. When we see the turmoil that can be born and the confusion and the struggling, is it any wonder for us that transcendence holds this appeal? This possibility of going beyond, of leaving all of this behind. Is it any wonder that in the past and in the present, suddenly it becomes very exciting that maybe, maybe, we can go beyond all of this? But it's important, I feel, to look very clearly at our desire to transcend because it does flavor our spiritual life and it does flavor how we integrate our spiritual life and it does flavor how we live our lives and how we relate to the world around us. We don't live in a monastery. We don't live a removed, a disconnected life. We live in a life of intimate relationships where we're called upon to respond, where we're called upon to care and to connect. And surely no other generation before us has inherited such a responsibility both to heal the world around us and to heal the essential fabric of human relationship. And this this is what our lives are about this moment-to-moment capacity to connect and to respond. And how do we reconcile? How can we reconcile transcendence with being a conscious participant in the world? And this, to me, is our, is our challenge. How do we reconcile those two, those two? I mean, if we're hooked, consciously or unconsciously, into transcendence, How consciously can we actually participate in our world? In healing, in being awake, in being clear. If we're really hooked into transcendence, how willing are we to use our lives as a vehicle for deepening in compassion, for deepening in wisdom? And to me, this is is the underlying problem that many of us face in our lives, that we have this hidden agenda about spirituality. And we have these hidden associations with spirituality that actually often lead us to feel this underlying guilt or sense of inferiority or sense of somehow being second rate in the spiritual paths we have chosen. You know, there's these images that if we were really doing it, where would we be? You know, if we were really serious, you know, we wouldn't be here. You know, we'd have a uniform and, you know, we'd have an institution and and that's where we'd be. And there is often this underlying discomfort, this underlying sense of, of guilt about our own spiritual path which to me it is extraordinarily important to understand and to resolve so that if we participate in this world, we do it consciously. And if our spirituality is going to be alive in our lives, it needs to have a motivation and an inspiration which is extraordinarily clear 
because our motivation, our inspiration is what connects us. It's what inspires us. Sometimes transcendence, as I mentioned, is rooted in suffering and the desire to get out of suffering. Sometimes it's also rooted in aversion. The feeling that I simply don't like it, that it's too difficult, that it's too unpleasant. But then one would really have to question whether aversion is any more of a wholesome characteristic of mind than clinging. Two questions I feel we need to ask ourselves. Is it possible, is it even desirable to disassociate ourselves from the world and our lives for the sake of transcendence? The second question I I feel is important is, is transcendence a motivation which is actually ethical? Is it actually a compassionate motivation? There is, as we see, enormous amount of suffering. What are we saying when we say, I want to go beyond it? Sometimes that's a statement of powerlessness, a feeling of being simply unable to change. Sometimes it's a statement of aversion, that I just want to close my heart and my mind to it because it is just too painful. It may seem that it's a statement of emptiness, You know, it seems a logical statement to make. We've all heard the world is empty, so it seems a logical thing to do to go beyond it. Yet what are we really saying about our own relationship and our own connections in that? The results of the desire to transcend, to me, are fairly obvious in spirituality. I mean, we have this whole spiritual tradition and history where spirituality has separated itself from the world and looked upon the world with a certain amount of disdain and contempt. You know, that that is less worthy. You know, that is worldly. That is attached. That is bondage. And here is the spiritual life that is somehow separate, that is much more worthwhile. And to me, that basic separation is what has always allowed it to happen in in our world, that we can reach for the heavens with one hand and we can stomp all over the earth with the other. You know, that we can talk about spiritual ideals and wonderful states of concentration, whereas our basic day-to-day, moment-to-moment relationships may be very fragmented. And to me, that, that division of spirituality in the world has never done one single thing towards healing suffering. In fact, I fear it actually perpetuates it because it justifies disassociation and it justifies disconnection. What I feel is important to question, is there another inspiration for spiritual learning? Is there another inspiration possible for spiritual deepening other than transcendence? And I feel we need to consider, even just consider, the possibility of the inspiration for transformation. Now again, when we hear that, our mind often kind of sinks. 
Oh, that's what people do who couldn't do transcendence. They go for transformation. Is that true? Is that actually true for us? What do we talk about when we talk about transformation? I feel what we're really concerned with then is our moment-to-moment relationship, what we give, and our willingness to learn from what we receive. To me, this is all what transformation is about. What we give, what we manifest in the world, and our moment-to-moment willingness to learn from what we receive. If that's possible in our lives, every single thing is a vehicle for learning. And again, that's such an association in meditation. Learning takes place in a special state. You know, learning is what we do in deep states of concentration. You know, and the person beside us is fidgeting, or the child is crying, or there's a noise in the meditation room. We think, well, once that's finished, you know, I'm really going to get into some good learning. That is where we learn. That is actually where we learn. Not necessarily in deep states of concentration. Not when the difficult is finished. That is our vehicle. Happiness and joy are also our vehicle. But the two sides of the coin, the yin and the yang, of joy and pain can't be separated. And they are actually our vehicles for learning. Look at what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is not at all about some idyllic state of consciousness. Mindfulness is not some, you know, kind of place of bliss we hang out in in meditation. Mindfulness is not some state that is, you know, the boundaries of which are meditation cushion. That's not mindfulness. What actually is taking place when we're mindful? Isn't mindfulness intimate relationship with the moment, with anything in the moment? Isn't mindfulness that way of using attention to bring us so close to the moment that there's a deep sense of connectedness and openness? I mean, isn't that what we do in meditation when we're with our breath, when we're with our feet? It's not to, you know, to be a good walker, or to be a perfect breather. That's not mindfulness. Our mindfulness is actually coming so close to that experience that the experience and the experiencer are not separate. That we are really so present in that experience that the learning that is needed is revealed to us through our presence. Isn't mindfulness actually the art of connectedness? There's nothing more complicated to mindfulness than that. But it is actually the art of connectedness. And when we're connected, we are alive. We are awake. We are aware and we are conscious. And we are also clear. When we are clear, what do we see? When we have that kind of connection, that immediate and direct connection, what do we see? We do see where we hold. We do see where we cling. We do see where we create limitation. And we respond to that because of the immediacy of our presence. And if we see clearly, then what happens? We are able to let go. 
not because we should and not because it's a spiritual thing to do, but because actually we see that letting go is an act of compassion. Letting go is actually an act of love for ourselves, for the people that we're with, for the world that we're in. Because letting go means dropping the images, dropping the barriers, dropping the filters, and allowing ourselves just to open and to learn. And this is what mindfulness practice is. It's, you know, if you've done, you must have done retreats here, you know that mindfulness has nothing to do with going slowly. You know that you can go slowly and be the spaciest walker on earth. You know, you can have the most perfect sitting posture and the most scattered mind. Mindfulness is the spirit of our relationship and not the action. When we are mindful, really mindful, in the very, very relationship of mindfulness, there is transformation. And that, I feel, is what's so important for us to see. That, that we don't have to hold transformation as some kind of conscious goal. That in the very connection of mindfulness, there is transformation. When we don't resist because we're present, when we don't hold because we are present, what happens within ourselves? What happens within ourselves through that connection? The very things that we resisted because we used to see them as obstacles, aren't they transformed into ways of learning? The very things that we used to hold on to because we thought they were so necessary to us, in being able to let go, aren't we transformed? Aren't we made just that much more open? and that much more sensitive, and that much more clear. Out of that connection, out of that very mindfulness, there is renunciation, born of love and not born of aversion. There is giving and there is service, born not of obligation, born not of a desire to go beyond, but out of a real fundamental connectedness. There is service, because there's a real knowing that to serve another is to serve ourselves. There is purification, because there is letting go, out of a, because ethics is born out of that connectedness. What we are asked to do in this, I feel, in meditation, is not to create images of goals, of destinations to reach, but to look at our vehicles, to really see where our vehicles actually lie, Not, and to really be clear whether we unconsciously have an agenda about transcendence that distorts our capacity to be really mindful in this moment, that distorts our capacity to be a conscious, wholehearted participant in the moment that we're actually experiencing. And that mindfulness does allow us to empty ourselves, to listen and to learn. And so much of meditation to me is really just about learning how to empty ourselves. There's that wonderful poem of Chuang Tzu about the empty boat. It said, if a man is crossing a river, and an empty boat collides with his own skiff. 
Even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees another parson in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. To empty our boats doesn't mean that we don't think, doesn't mean that we don't feel, and doesn't mean that we don't respond. But what it does mean is that we learn to respond to what actually is. And then we learn to respond to what the moment brings to us without our memories, our impressions from the past, but learning to respond in a way in which we are wholeheartedly present. And in that emptiness, that inner spaciousness, there is mindfulness and there's learning. And we see how much transformation takes place on a moment-to-moment level. And in that we know deeply that we are not only consciously participating in our world, but that we are consciously participating in the creation of each moment and in the creation of the world that we live in. And that that creation is really being born of a sense of wisdom and a deep quality of compassion. We have just a couple of minutes quietly together. 